This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Michael and Sunny Hollywood Pooney. Hey, this is Sebastian Bach. Slave to the Grind, our second record, was the first metal album ever to debut at number one since Michael Jackson's Bad which had happened in 87. And it was the first ever week of SoundScan, which where they changed the process of rating how the chart works to a purely sales-based business model, which meant every record was scanned across the counter. We debuted at number one on that week. My first thought on the album Slate of the Grind is still to this day, when I hear the song Monkey Business, it crushes my skull. I have to hold my head in my hands and go, how will you ever beat that one right there? That is a monster jam. I defy you to put that on and not bang your head. Hollywood. So you come up with an interesting episode. And like a lot of episodes where I don't really have a clue what you're doing, I'm just going to kind of follow along. But basically, we're talking all things Slave to the Grind by Skid Row, and then a lot of other stuff that surrounds that album. Is that kind of what we're doing? Completely wrong. So what we're doing is we are celebrating June 29th, 1991 which happens to be a special day for Slave to the Grind, and talking all things around what was happening besides Slave to the Grind. So I'll explain that in a little while. See, that's exactly what happens when you wake me up from my nap at 1130 at night, dude. This is the kind of shit that goes on. This is going to be a fun episode, though. I've seen some of the stuff that you got planned, and I'm intrigued and scared all at the same time. But before we get too far into tonight's episode, let's talk about my last night's evening event. A friend of mine here in town was throwing a big birthday party. And so as part of that birthday party, he worked on bringing in Tokyo Motor Fist to play the local club and celebrate the birthday. And so I attended this event. It was fun because there were a lot of monsters of rock cruisers that were there and came into town for the event. You know, it was just like a regular concert. So the opening band, they had a local cover band play. But what was cool about this cover band is that they literally did all European type stuff. So they did Hardcore Superstar and Shotgun Messiah and a couple of Steel Dragon tunes. And they did, I think the most popular, well-known song they did was Kicks Cold Blood. They also did Slide It In by Whitesnake. So they had an amazing set list and they were good live musically. 
The problem for me came with the person that was singing the songs. If you're going to do a Millie song, you better be able to sing. And this person did not sing well. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be positive and nice about this. But the reason I have to bring this up is because I saw plenty of people that were like, oh, this band was amazing. They were killer. They should be on the Monsters of Rock cruise. They were awesome. And I'm here just to kind of bring it back to reality and say they need a different singer. And she wasn't a bad front woman. She did fine with working the crowd, but she couldn't sing. So if you can give me a band that plays these covers with a different singer, I'm all in. They were playing crazy stuff, man. Like uh, Bang Goes the Bell by Babylon AD. I mean, you don't hear cover bands play any of the stuff they were playing. They played a Santa Cruz song, for God's sakes. Yeah, that was amazing. And I have to say, Tokyo Motor Fist, for not having played in 15 months and really just not having a whole opportunity to rehearse, they were actually better than when we saw them on the boat, man. They were really pretty solid. Vocals were good. Background vocals were good. They played well. They were tight. I was pretty amazed at how decent they actually were. So I have to give them credit for that. I had a great time. It was great seeing a lot of people. It was the first time that I actually got to feel some normalcy where everybody wasn't wearing masks and everybody wasn't, you know, it wasn't this weird vibe and there was live music and it was cool. I enjoyed it. Yeah. The tough part is like, if you can have a cover band having great musicians, okay, that helps. But the reality of the situation is you can have average musicians because the songs that you just said are so great. That as long as they can pull them somewhat off, it's all about the melody and the singer. That person can't miss because that's the part that everybody's going to remember. Now, if you're going to do a bunch of Van Halen songs, okay, we are in a different place because if the guy doesn't do Eddie right, it's going to be bad, right? Or if you're going to do a bunch of Ozzy songs and you can't do Randy right, then that's going to be a problem. But the reality is most of the songs you talked about, yes, I'm not saying they're not stellar guitar players, but they're not memorable as the melody and the actual singer of those songs. So if you're not going to have the right singer, that's bad. And then on Tokyo Motor Fist, which will be interesting, guys like Ted Poley, who are in their late 50s, early 60s, they don't want to wish bad on anybody. Don't get me wrong here. But this 15 months they got off is going to do wonders for their voice. Like, I get it. The guitar players and the bassists and the drummers are going crazy because they're going to get money playing live, blah, blah, blah. For the singers, though, it could probably prolong his career another four or five years, possibly, for not putting another 15 months on his voice. I'm sure he'd rather play live. But reality is there's going to be some benefit from this. Unless you're Vince Neal. Oh, oh too soon? Yeah, that's too a, soon. Dude. <laughs> wow. That, that whole thing, my voice is shot. I'm out. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> too soon. The band didn't even know what was going on. They're all girls, girls, girls. <laughs> they just do what they do, right? What do you want them to do? Stop? What I wanted to happen was Dana, sing the song. You know the song? That's just a disgrace, man. I'm sorry. I can't keep making excuses for that kind of stuff, man. There's just, I actually saw somebody post where they were making excuses for him. And I'm like, stop. You're a fan. You deserve better than that. That guy is a professional. He's got 30 plus years of experience under his belt. Don't make it okay for him to do shit like that. That ain't cool. <laughs> just don't. I, you know, I'm okay with saying, Hey, I'm sorry. My vocals ain't working. Dana's going to sing the song or just to go. I'm sorry. I'm out. I ain't got it and walk off stage. F you, buddy. No way. Cause you know, his ass is getting paid. 
there was folks talking about it this week about well, what happens with the crew tour, blah, blah, blah. There's people talking about that tour is $20 million. There is no way Vince ain't doing that tour. He can't. The other guys will sue his ass, yeah. right? There, there's no way. He doesn't have that kind of money. I just can't believe that with all that going on, you had 15 months to stay on top of your chops, to get into shape, to do something to show that you cared and you did nothing. And that's BS. I can't stand it. It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. Tonight's Crank It Up New Music Spotlight comes once again from our sponsors at Manscaped. It's important in the rock and roll business to be well manscaped. Perfect grooming is important to dirty rocker boys. And we trust our sponsor, Manscaped, the best for men's below-the-waist grooming to take care of us. Manscaped offers precision engineering tools for your family jewels, baby. Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right. The Lawnmower 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with their family jewels with this exclusive offer just for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the promo code ROCK and ROLL at Manscaped.com. Again, that promo code ROCK and roll at manscaped.com. Check out some of these killer features. Manscaped engineered the ultimate groin and body trimmer by focusing on intelligent functionality and an incredibly comfortable grooming experience. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents. You know what I'm talking about. Thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. This upgraded trimmer includes a multifunctional on off switch that can engage a travel lock just in case you're traveling. It also gives you the ability to turn on the 4000 K LED spotlight on and off when you need a more precise shave, I guess in the dark, the lawnmower 4.0 even allows you to customize your trim with the additional guard links with your sizes one through four. Did I mention wireless charging? The new wireless charging system uses electromagnetic induction, which can help battery length last longer. Oh, and it's waterproof, so you can use it in the shower all you want. Boom. Pick up one of these today. I used mine today, and I promise you, your partner and your balls will thank you. So get 20% off plus free shipping with promo code rock and roll at manscaped dot com today stop being a dirty dirty boy all right i don't know about you sonny but i got my mower 4.0 in the mail from manscaped and i gotta tell you it's like the apple of trimmers i mean it came in a nice box that was some pretty nice product that they sent us as sponsors of this show and it worked pretty dang well. <laughs> I, gotta, I didn't need to hear that. Nobody <laughs> needed to hear that. Everybody likes a well-groomed rocker boy. Come on now. You can't tell me your wife doesn't like a well-groomed man. I am not bringing any of that up. <laughs> All right. So let's get into tonight's Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. It comes to us from the band Hardline. Hardline is releasing their seventh studio album in July called Heart, Mind, and Soul. The band currently consists of longtime lead singer Johnny Gioli, guitar player Mario Percaduni, on bass Anna, these names are just too tough, 
here's who's in Hardline right now. On guitar, Mario, playing bass, Anna, and playing drums, Marco. Our friend, Alessandro Del Vecchio, on keyboards and backing vocals. Hardline is a great band. They've been around for a while. They basically have sort of become a project of Johnny Gioli, and then he has uh, Alessandro Del Vecchio do a lot of the writing and playing keyboards as well. But everybody else kind of comes and goes in that band, right? Yeah, Hardline is a, you know, it's a top 100 band for me. And there's a lot of bands that wouldn't make it there. Pretty much whatever they put out is very, very listenable. There's not a lot that blows you away, but there's not a lot that disappoints you either. So they're Steady Eddie. They're just a solid, melodic, hard rock band. Check out this new song called Surrender off the latest released Heart, Mind, and Soul coming in July. Think about this Wrap your head 
So yeah, normal melodic hardline. That's exactly what that is. Chorus is great. Vocals are great. That main intro riff, that is Tony in a nutshell. He would write that style riff over and over and over. That's got Tony written all over it. And when he hears this, he'll be like, no, no, no. And then I'm going to send a bunch of clips of restrained shit that sounds just like that when he writes it. I like it. It's uh, straight up my alley. So good stuff. Uh, I expect the record to be no different. They're like Sonny said, they're pretty steady Eddie. Uh, so it's not a big risk uh, with the hardline stuff. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. Okay, so basically what we're going to do today is we are going to celebrate June 29th, 1991. So special day in hard rock history because Skid Row's Slave to the Grind debuted on Billboard 200 album chart at number one, and it was the first time a hard rock act had ever done that before. Now, we're not going to review Slave to the Grind album. Maybe we do that someday. But instead, we're going to travel back in time and look at all the other rock and hard rock acts that were on the chart at the same time. So basically, we're sizing up Skid Row's competition here. We're kind of looking at the 30 or so bands, and there's another six albums on this list that actually went number one at one point. But basically, Skid Row hits the chart and topples them all in one shot. And we're going to take a trip down memory lane here. So we're going to talk about a bunch of albums just really quick that we don't usually mention. Before we get started, you got to realize a couple of things. One is it's 629.91 MTV is controlling the charts. Whether anybody wants to like it or not, whether two years later is it the same MTV? No, it isn't. But at this point, it is. So when Skid Row released the two singles before the album got released, there was videos attached to it that were already all over MTV. The other thing I got to tell you is these dates are a little fuzzy. So let me kind of explain. Supposedly, some believe that Slave to the Grind was released on 6-11-91. So back in the day, stuff got released on Tuesdays. So the debut charting week usually was the next week to give it a full week. Well, that would have made this album number one on debut week on June 22nd, 91, not June 29th, 91, but it didn't. It didn't chart to the following week. So either the release date is wrong or it didn't chart on its debut week or because of the changes that happened with SoundScan and how they were counting albums, all that change happened just like Sebastian just told you at the same time. So that could have delayed it a week. So if you're out there looking at the charts and going, hey, Sonny's wrong about these dates. Dude, the dates are a little fuzzy. I can shed a little bit of light. I know for a fact, because I was working at a record distributor at the time this album was released, that this album debuted at number one. It was a big deal. It was the first heavy metal, hard rock album, whatever you, you want to call it, to debut at number one in the sound scan era. So I don't know about the dates, but I can tell you that it did debut at number one. Just to give you an idea of what was number one on the charts, the weeks leading up to it. So on 615, which all these charts ended on a Saturday. So on 615.91, Paula Abdul was number one. NWA was number two. The next week on the 22nd, NWA was number one and Paula was number two. And then the following week, Slave to the Grind took the top spot. But they only had it for one week because the next week, Van Halen's Fuck came out and it debuted at number one and Slave to the Grind started its slide down. So, hey, 
It's a date in history, 629.91. Okay, so to talk about what other rock was on the charts. So basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the Billboard 200, but I'm really only going to mention the albums that are rock and hard rock until we get to the top 10. So at 187, obviously there's 200 albums on this chart, was the album by the band Contraband. And it was their first and only album. It was their first week on the chart. It was their peak week because they never made it past 187. <laughs> and all the way from Memphis got it to the charts. Like I said, it lasted a whole week. They had a song on that uh, movie called If Looks Could Kill, that Richard Grieco movie that helped it run a little bit, but uh, the album just didn't have any staying power. At 185, we had Bang Tango dancing on coals. It had dropped 66 spots in one week. So it, it peaked at 113, but it was dropping like a lead balloon. And that's just because, you know, Dancing on Coal, Soul to Soul, Midnight Struck, like those songs just weren't super radio friendly. And part of that's my opinion because I'm not a big Bang Tango fan. At number 178 was Recycler by ZZ Top. It had had some charting success. It was on the chart for 35 weeks. But check out these songs, Double Back, Concrete and Steel, My Head's in Mississippi, Give It Up, Decision or Collision. Those were all the singles. I remember Give It Up. I don't remember any of those other songs. Like, I have no clue what those other songs are. So ZZ Top, I mean, it's 91. They're pretty much dead in the water. At 167, Heartbreak Station by Cinderella. It was basically kind of running flat for about this time. It was on the chart for like 30 weeks. This album had done really well because it peaked at number 19 at one point and had been out now for like nine months. You know, singles like Shelter Me, Heartbreak Station, The More Things Change, you know, to me, Cinderella had one amazing album. The first one, it was downhill after that, but really on the charts, they did okay. And then at 162, we have Edge of the Century by Styx. Uh, they were on the charts for a long time. This album didn't do super well. Uh, Love is a Ritual, Show Me the Way, Love at First Sight. You know, those were the singles. Styx is kind of super hit and miss for me. I enjoy a lot of the Tommy songs more than the Dennis songs. Um, I want to get your thoughts on those five albums. I would say to me, Cinderella is the best out of these five. Do you remember these five albums and what are your thoughts on them? Bits and pieces of them. Contraband, I stopped it all the way from Memphis. I just wasn't a huge fan of that song. I maybe owned it for a split second, but I don't ever even remember owning that record. It just didn't do that much for me. Bang Tango, I liked the first record. I think Psycho Cafe was the first record, if I'm not mistaken. I thought there was some good stuff on there. I own Dancing on Coals, but truthfully, they weren't a band that really I was a huge fan of. They were kind of okay with me. Recycler, I didn't remember this album. I had to go back and look at this record and, and remember. I do remember Double Back, and I do remember My Head's in Mississippi. When I listened to those two songs, I do remember both of them. Really, this album had some decent stuff on it, though, because I kind of went through the album fairly quick today. But it sounded in line with, you know, Eliminator and uh, Afterburner. Uh, obviously, it didn't have the hits that Eliminator had on it. Heartbreak Station, I think that was primarily driven by um, It and Don't Know What You Got on that record till it's gone. I thought that was on the record before that. I don't remember, to be honest. I thought Don't Know What You Got is on Heartbreak Station, being that it was on the charts for 30 weeks and got to number 19. I'm willing to bet that that song is on that, but... Steven is wrong again. Cinderella's Don't Know What You Got Till It's Gone was on Long Cold Winter. We have been keeping track around here, so 
doing some quick math on who is normally wrong between Stephen and Hollywood, hold on times 54, carry the one, the wrong score is Stephen 656, Sunny 3. Now, back to the show. It was a bluesy record, more so than even Long Hole Winter. And so they kind of lost me at this record, to be honest. There's some good stuff on it, but I'm way bigger fan of the first and the second record than I am of this record. And we've heard stories about how they were kind of starting to headline at this point with this album, but they ended up canceling the tour because the numbers they were doing were bad. They weren't doing great numbers as a headlining act. Edge of the Century for Sticks. All I knew was Love is the Ritual and Tommy Shaw wasn't in the band at the time. So this album was basically a Glenn Burtnick record with Dennis DeYoung. It doesn't sound like Sticks at all. It's a weird sounding record. It's poppy. It's synth heavy. There's some okay songs on it. I breezed through it today, but overall, it's just not a Sticks record for me. I would say for me, the best out of these records is probably. That's a rough bunch, but I guess maybe Cinderella. I don't know. I liked a lot of the stuff I heard on Recycler today. So. <laughs> <laughs>
what's interesting about this date is most of the hard rock that's on the charts that we're going to talk about today is headed on the way down. But grunge is not quite hit yet. So you don't see the grunge albums coming up. I guess the moral to this story is the timing was absolutely perfect for Skid Row. It does not surprise me that Van Halen was number one the next week. Don't get me wrong there. It's Van Halen, right? It does surprise me that Skid Row debuted at number one. And I think part of it had to do with, they were hot. There's no doubt about that. And then part of it had to do with some serious timing. This August will rock as Rockin' Pod returns to Nashville. This annual convention brings together rock artists, fans, and podcasters for an unforgettable rock experience. Meet Billy Sheehan, Ron Keel, Ricky Rackman, Mark Goodman, Matt Pinfield, Don Jameson of That Metal Show, drum legends Carmine Apice and Vinny Apice, along with current and former members of Winger, LA Guns, Except, Roxy Blue, and more. Panels, signing sessions, and vinyl and memorabilia vendors, all available to you at Rockin' Pod. Music podcasters from all over North America will be appearing on site for live interviews, networking, and speaking sessions. Got a music podcast? Register and join us. Rockin' Pod Weekend kicks off with a pre-party concert featuring former Tesla guitarist Tommy Skio and his new band Resist and Bite. Plus, Ron Keel Acoustic, Rock United, and a rare hair set featuring many surprise guests. Rockin' Pod Weekend, August 6th through the 8th in Nashville, Tennessee. Tickets, VIP, podcaster registration, and discounted hotel rooms are available now at rockandpod.com. Rockin' Pod, brought to you by DBG Productions, Bradley Entertainment, and Incaptia. So to get to the next few records, so kind of getting down on the chart here at 153, only talking about the rock, Aerosmith Pump is on the album charts. It had been on the album charts 89 weeks. It was released in September of 89. We're talking about June 29th, 91. And if you think about it, this album, man, they, they really bled this album dry. Loving an Elevator, F-I-N-E, Janie's Got a Gun, What It Takes, The Other Side, Monkey on My Back. I mean, there was so many charting songs on this thing that uh, it doesn't surprise me lasted on the chart so long. I'm not much of an Aerosmith fan. I can tolerate some of the mid-80s to early 90s hits, that, and that's really about it. Believe it or not, at 146 with Blood on the Bricks by Aldo Nova. Talk about a album not very many people talk about, and it didn't last on the charts long. It never even cracked the top 100. But, you know, the only real single on this album was Blood on the Bricks. By the time 91 rolls around, it's basically his name that's selling it a little bit, but besides that... This guy's not exactly a radio darling. He might be writing songs for other people, but he's not on his own. At 140, man, what a great album. Voodoo Highway by Badlands. So it was their debut week when Slave to the Grind debuted at number one and Contraband debuted at 187. Badlands debuted at 140 and then never did any better than that. Um, the album basically died off as quick as it landed. I love the last time off that. I mean, that whole album's got so many just great deep rock cuts. At 135, main attraction by White Lion. It had dropped 55 points in one week, and White Lion just basically never hit the charts after this. They were on the way down. Singles like Love Don't Come Easy were okay. Broken Heart 91 was okay. 
Lights and Thunder, I don't even remember. Out with the Boys, I don't remember because it didn't get much airplay. Like after When the Children Cry, basically White Lion was labeled one of the pretty ballad bands and pretty much nobody uh, gave them the time of day or they didn't get the respect that they deserved most likely. And then at 1.30, a greatest hits album hits by The Doors. And if you're wondering what the hell is The Doors that released in October of 1980, how the hell is it on the charts in June 29th of 1991? Well, the movie The Doors with Val Kilmer came out in March of 1991. And there is actually four Doors albums that are on this chart competing against each other, making one of them diamond, a couple of them multi-platinum. And Oliver Stone just made that movie a huge hit. And the music was super hot at the time. And honestly, this is kind of how I got introduced to The Doors. The movie was cool. I liked Val Kilmer. And I'm like, oh, I think I'm going to check out The Doors. So all of the four albums that are on these charts that we're going to talk about by The Doors are the only Doors albums I own (laughs) because I'm some of the suckers that bought all these albums. So I wanted to get your take on those five. To me, out of these five, I would have to say Badlands is probably the best of the bunch because I'm not counting the greatest hits by The Doors. Well, God, this is a much better group of five than the last uh, five you gave me. Thank God. (laughs) All right. So we'll start with Pump by Aerosmith. I just came off doing a Aerosmith retrospective for 82 through 2012. So that covers the Pump era. And I think this record's killer. This is a solid Aerosmith record from start to finish. Really, really good record. Blood on the Bricks, Alda Nova, I think by far is probably the biggest hidden gem on this list. It's a really, really good record. This was the first record that John Bon Jovi did on his own record label, which if you listen to the stories that Aldo tells, it was really just a weird deal money-wise and that whole label thing. I think it was something that Polygram gave to John just to appease him. It was just a weird deal, but it wasn't a well-run label. It didn't work out well, and this album came out, and it got no promotion. I actually went to an album release party for this album, and I met Aldo at that party. It was the first and only time I've ever met Aldo Nova. He's super short, by the way. It comes up to my chest, but you know, it was an album listening party. I thought the record was good. I got the promo of it. I love the record to this day. It's got some really, really good stuff on that record. So blood on the Brooks by Aldenova. If you can find it, I would highly recommend you go check it out because it definitely has some solid rock stuff on there. Voodoo highway by badlands. I didn't even know came out. I loved the first Badlands record. I never even knew this record came out. I didn't discover this record till much later after this record was out. And Sonny's right. It's got some really good stuff on it. Three-day funk. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Main Attraction by White Lion. Thunder and Lightning is actually one of the better tunes off that record, in my opinion. But Sonny said everything that needed to be said about this record. And he's dead on with his assessment. And then The Doors' Greatest Hits. I have to be honest. I knew about The Doors. I wasn't a huge fan. But the movie is what got me back into The Doors and The Doors' music, just like Sonny. So there you go. And there's going to be people looking at charts from, what, 2017, 2018, going, how are all these Queen albums on the charts, right? And I think the same thing happened is the minute the Queen movie came out, Like all the greatest hits albums were on the charts all of a sudden, right? So same deal. 
Okay, the next set of albums we're going to talk about that Skid Row's competing against at number 120, Damn Yankees, self-titled. Damn Yankees have been on the charts for a while. This album released 15 months before Skid Row released, but thanks to some great singles like Coming of Age, Come Again, High Enough, Runaway, Bad Reputation, you know, you got Ted Nugent, you got Jack Lage, you got Tommy Shaw, like there's name, there's there's songs, there's the ballad, they had everything they needed. It was a platinum album, so it lasted a while. At 119, the door soundtrack, so the actual soundtrack to the movie was at 119. At 114 is an interesting one, Backstreet Symphony by Thunder. So, um, you know, if you don't know anything about Thunder, uh, they've been around a little while, and they have a ton of albums. they got a ton of live albums. But uh, a lot of us, probably if you're my age, the only really video you saw was Dirty Love. And this thing released in March of 90. It had been out there for about 14 months, but it had a hell of a time getting to the charts. They released a bunch of singles. She's So Fine, Dirty Love, Backstreet Symphony, Give Me Some Lovin', No Luck, No Luck, No Luck. They released Love Walked In, bam, in February comes on the charts. This was the peak week at 114, dropped like a <laughs> lead balloon after that. So it didn't last too long. At number 108, we have Brian Howe's Bad Company with Holy Water. Rest in peace, sir. This album had been released about a year ahead of time, and it was kind of headed on the way down. But singles like Holy Water, If You Need Somebody, Walk Through Fire, kept it going for a little while. At 101, I spent money on In Concert by the Doors. It was a double CD, man. And I'm telling you, the record company took advantage. Anything that even smelled like a Doors album, you could have sold Doors toilet paper if you wanted to. <laughs> Anything they could do to make money, they made money with it. So, At the 100 mark, is Stick It To You by Slaughter. It had been on the charts for 72 weeks, thanks to Fly to the Angels and Up All Night. Spend My Life, Mad About You also got released. This thing was on the charts for a while. This one album basically is what Slaughter is still touring on for the rest of its life. Because the album after this, I don't think hit the charts for like three weeks. <laughs> and it was dead before it began. And then at number 85, oh my God, it's it's just even hard to say. But Trickster, their, <laughs> their self-titled album was at number 85. It had been on the charts for 44 weeks. When I listen to Trickster and I listen to Badlands Voodoo Highway, it just makes me mad that Trickster did better. It took a while for this album to get going, but then it did pretty well because of stuff like One in a Million, and the album actually went gold. Trickster has a gold album. Yes, shout it out loud, Cass. I said that out loud. Trickster has a gold album. So I want to get your thoughts on these uh, five albums besides the Doors one. Uh, to me, the Slaughter album is probably the best out of the bunch because it's a desert island for me. Trickster has a gold album. Surprised it's actually not a platinum album, but that is completely call-in MTV-driven. They were being called in MTV on Give It To You Good and One In A Million, like, all the time, constantly, every day, that dial-in MTV, whatever that show was called, they were all over that. So that's what drove that for the 44 weeks, for sure. Damn Yankees, that's a great debut record. Love, love, love. Tommy Shaw, Jack Blades, just, it's a great band. Damn Yankees, love that record. So 66 weeks on the charts, driven by what, high enough probably, right? Yeah. Uh, the Doors soundtrack, yeah. I mean, it's like we've already talked about that. Backstreet Symphony, Thunder. To this day, Thunder is still an arena band in the UK. For whatever reason, they can't seem to crack the U.S. This was their closest attempt. They came at cracking the U.S., 
And it's weird. If you're a bad company, like a Brian Howe bad company fan, then you should like Thunder because they're very, very similar. And we saw Thunder on the Monsters of Rock Cruise, and they were really good. I mean, they were a solid band. They sound great. The Doors in concert, it is what it is. Stick it to you, Slaughter. I don't know if it's a Desert Island record for me, but it's a really, really solid record, and it was for me at the time it came out. And Trickster, for all the shit that they get, and it's probably the name doesn't help, Trickster's put out some good records. I like a lot of their stuff and beyond just this first record. So it is what it is. I think it's the name. Honestly, I really do think it's the name because I think the records have some good material on it. Probably out of this bunch of records for me, it's probably Slaughter as well. That's probably the record that I spent the most time with out of all these records would be Stick It To You uh, and then Damn Yankees and then Trickster. Trickster was probably the last of the so-called pretty hair metal, if you want to call them, right? Pretty hair metal that really did well. After Trickster, like grunge has taken over, there isn't bands like Trickster making it anymore. And I think if Trickster comes out in 86, 87, they probably do have a platinum album, right? But uh, just a little too late.
the next five albums where we take a quick break here, number 82, Hellacious Acres by Dangerous Toys. So this falls right in with that whole um, Voodoo Highway with Badlands. It's a great album that just does not get a lot of play because Dangerous Toys' first album, although I love it, didn't super do well. Like it's just, it doesn't have, McMaster doesn't have that, you know, ballady voice and they're not exactly what you would call handsome men. Um, but they had just released this album. It was on the chart for two weeks and it peaked out at 67 and then kind of headed back down. Uh, but line them up, give me no lip or the singles. They just didn't do super well. Number 78. Oh my God. Talk about an album that was on the charts forever. 93 weeks. Dr. Feel Good. It's headed on the way down finally. But as we know, this album went number one in 1990. And, you know, thanks to MTV and singles like Dr. Feel Good and Kickstart My Heart and Without You and Don't Go Away Mad and Stable Situation, all the songs that Vince couldn't sing now, if he wanted to, it stayed on forever. And you could honestly argue that I know everybody says that they love to shout at the devil crew, but reality is the height of their popularity is probably 1990. That is the top peak of their popularity. And then as they start having problems, they're headed on the way down. And number 76, Flashpoint. This is a live album by the Rolling Stones. You know, the Stones can basically drop any album they want. They shit platinum. That's just kind of how it goes. Uh, they did release two singles off this live album, Highwire and Ruby Tuesday. The album hung around for a while, but uh, it fell off pretty quickly. And number 70, Hooked by Great White. And you know what? That's a pretty good album. You know, after um, Once Bitten, Twice Shy, you know, people don't talk about Great White much, but this album surprisingly peaked at 18. And I think they were still kind of riding the wave of their peak of popularity because singles like Congo Swear didn't do that great. And Desert Moon is actually a really good song. I like it, but I don't think that did that well either. But what kept them on the charts for a while is the third single that came out in September afterwards, which was Call It Rock and Roll. So that helped the album stay on the charts for a while, but it was swimming in the, the high 100s until it dropped off. And then at number 66, Five Man Acoustical Jam is still hanging out up there by Tesla. It'd been on the charts for 31 weeks. And as we know, signs alone made them huger than huge. It was on MTV for every 63 seconds, probably. And the way it is actually did well live too. And this was probably Tesla's height of popularity as they start kind of dropping off. So you see these bands that are really touching the peak. And whether they're arena bands or up-and-comers, and they are headed on the way down as Skid Row passes them. What do you think about these five albums? To me, believe it or not, I think Great White is the best album out of these five. Interesting uh, group of five. You nailed it with Hellacious Acres and saying that it was very similar to the Badlands record because it was exactly that for me. I didn't even know this record came out. I was a semi-fan of the first record. They had some success with uh, Sporting a Woody and uh, Teasing Pleasing and Scared. Hellacious Acres, I just kind of missed. I rediscovered this record after the fact more recently, like within the past couple years, because I saw them live the year before last, and I thought they were amazing live. I went and checked out this record, and I like it. Uh, it's got some really good stuff on it. Dr. Feel Good about Motley Crue. You know, what are you going to say? It was the height of their popularity for sure. I saw this tour probably a couple of times, I want to say. It was a great record, in my opinion. I like the Shout at the Devil phase, but I also like this phase. I like Dr. Feelgood better than I like Theater of Pain, for sure. Yeah, I like it better than Girls, 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 too. Flashpoint, that was the Live Stones record. I can't really say much about it. I don't know too much about the record. I mean, I like the Stones, but live records are just 
they are what they are. Hooked, I had to go back and listen to because I was like, what's on that record? You're right. Desert Moon is a great record. Call It Rock and Roll is meh to me. I also like Can't Shake It. Yeah, Can't Shake It's a great tune as well. But by far, Desert Moon is good. Five-Man Acoustical Jam, I think, is a fantastic acoustic record. It obviously did wonders for Tesla and helped cement them to be in a band that could continue on to this day. So I had the double cassette. I think that might have been one of the first double cassettes I ever owned was that Five-Man Acoustical Jam. Out of this bunch... I'd be crazy if I said anything other than Dr. Feelgood. I mean, I listen to that record a lot. That's really a solid record for me. So that's probably my favorite out of all this. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. All right, so we'll take a quick break out just to recognize the group in the Loud Minority Facebook group. The Growing Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group is a private group that we discuss the episodes and things coming up, topics that we might be considering doing, just different rock and roll stuff. It's a great group of folks. We keep it pretty positive over there. There's not a lot of poisonous remarks. And so if you're looking for a safe place to come and discuss rock and roll without being berated because you like Trickster or Pretty Boy Floyd, then come on over to the Grown Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group. And if you got friends that are into rock and roll, let them know helps out the podcast and it helps us discuss topics with you guys before we actually do episodes on them to get your thoughts and find out what you're thinking so that's the grown-up rock loud minority facebook group and while you're at it leave us a five-star review over there at apple itunes or Podchaser. that also is very helpful to us So getting back to what Skid Row had as competition at number 65, The Best of the Doors, it released in July 85. That's a Diamond album, by the way. Uh, number 64, Leonard Skinner, 1991. It was their first week. Dude, I I, I don't get Leonard Skinner. I, I, I just, I don't understand. Like, I listened to the two singles, Smokestack Lightning, Keeping the Faith, and I'm like, I just don't care. I don't understand why anybody listens to this band, right? So I, whatever. Number 61, fucking poison. Flesh and Blood had been on the charts for 49 weeks. That album went to number two, by the way, at one point. They're at the peak of their popularity in 1990 because singles like Unskinny Bop, Ride the Wind, Life Goes On sold the album well, and then Something to Believe In took it in the absolute stratosphere. They dropped uh, the single Flesh and Blood Sacrifice in July that kept the album on the charts even longer later on. At number 60, After the Rain by Nelson, they'd been on the charts now for almost a year. And if you remember Nelson, you know, you got two good-looking guys, they got a famous father, they got three poppy singles. Like, they were really meant for the charts. And Love and Affection, After the Rain, more than ever, are great songs. And they kept the album going for a while. They hit the timing right. They come out two years later, they probably don't do that well. At number 59, another band I could care less about, Yes. I didn't even know they were still releasing albums in 1991. An album called Union. Hell, it got to number 15 somehow. I don't even know how it got there. I can maybe name three Yes songs. Not my bag at all. I listened to this single, Saving My Heart. I was like, ugh, that was a waste of five minutes completely. 
at number 50, Steel Hearts, self-titled. So proud that this album got all the way to number 41. And this is one of the few rock albums at this point that is on the way up because the album had been on the charts because of I'll Never Let You Go being on MTV constantly. Everybody Love Eileen being on MTV constantly. And then the album actually peaked at 40 a couple of weeks later because She's Gone had just released. So this album was actually on the way up, one of the few. And then at number 49, we got Warren's Cherry Pie. It was actually headed on the way down because it had been out now for almost 10 months. And then it stayed even a while longer later on in July, they released Blind Faith. And uh, that did well too. So wanted to get your thoughts on these six albums. You know, The Doors is what it is. To me, Steelheart is the best one out of this group. Yeah, this is an interesting group of records. Yeah, like you said, The Doors is what it is, the best of. Leonard Skinner, 1991. I had to go look at that to see what that even was because I wasn't sure whether it was the greatest hits or what. It's actually new material. I listened to two or three songs, went through it real quick. Pretty standard Leonard Skinner stuff. So, I mean, if you're a fan of Skinner, then you like it. Flesh and Blood by Poison. I listen to this record a lot. I mean, I like Poison. Uh, I thought this record was interesting at first, but I thought it had some really good stuff on it. After the Rain was one of those records where I didn't want to like it. (laughs) And I was afraid that my friends were going to just come down on me if I showed that I liked this record. But I got to be honest with you, man. The songwriting on this record is really good. And I saw them several times in support of this record live and their band was just so killer and they sounded so good live i couldn't deny it i still think that that's a great record yeah shoot me i'm a nelson fan especially after the rain i thought it was really good union by yes i like a lot of yes stuff i'm not so much the proggy yes fan there's some of that stuff i like but I got into Yes with 902105030068, whatever that number was, and then Owner of the Lonely Heart, whatever record that Owner of the Lonely Heart is on. And then I liked Big Generator as as well. Uh, I thought Trevor Rabin did a really good job with the guitar on those two records. And so I liked Yes a little bit. The interesting story I have with Union in particular is that Union is the first record that Yes did with Arista Records. And at the time, I had a friend that worked for Arista, and she gave us concert tickets and bought us backstage to meet Yes. So I went to this concert in support of the Union Record to see Yes and went backstage to meet them. And I met some of them. And one of the guys I met, I hate to say it, was Chris Squire, who's such an influence to so many bass players, but he was a dick. Rest in peace. I mean, he's still a huge influence to a lot of people, and I know a lot of people praise him, and he is an amazing player. There's no doubt about it, but he was a dick. I'm just telling it like it is. So I'm going to go ahead and put that right there and leave that there. That's what I remember surrounding that record. Steelheart, yeah, to be honest, I wasn't into this band when this record was released because they kept pounding that single down my throat, and I hated that single. Angel Eyes, that video is on every two seconds. I hated it. It was a ballad and it wasn't for me, so I didn't like it. I came around much later on this record. I think it's a great record now because all the rocking stuff that's on this record is great. 
everybody loves Eileen and all the rest of the stuff that's not called Angel Eyes is good. <laughs> and then Cherry Pie uh, by Warrant. It's got a lot of great stuff on it. Cherry Pie is probably one of the lesser songs on that record for me. I like a lot of the deep tracks. Uncle Tom's Cabin is awesome. And MTV is what pushed that, both Cherry Pie and Uncle Tom's Cabin, and made that uh, record go on for 40 weeks. The record that I like best out of all this, God, I don't know, man. It's hard for me to pick. I like After the Rain a lot. I like Steelheart a lot. Cherry Pie, Warrant. Steven, for the record, the Yes album is called 90125. Also, we would like to apologize to the family of Chris Squire for what was said, although it was true, to make things right. We thought about playing a Yes song written by Chris but we realized that we don't really like Yes. So, here is Warrant with Love in Stereo. Enjoy.
so the next six albums is really, in my opinion, where the competition is fierce. It won't sound like it when I say some of the albums and the bands, but I think it is. So at number 45 at this point in time on June 29th, 1991, is Facelift by Alice in Chains. Uh, it took a while, and that's because grunge hasn't completely hit yet. Singles, We Die Young, Man the Box, See a Sorrow, Bleed the Freak, but like I said, grunge hasn't hit yet. You look at July 29th, 1992, and the, <laughs> the chart looks completely different of what kind of music is on it. At number 40, ACDC can basically just shit platinum. They put anything out, it's platinum, but this happened to be the razor's edge, and uh, it was around already 10 months, and it had peaked at number two, and it had singles like Thunderstruck and Many Talks and Are You Ready? And, you know, of course, it's named ACDC, so it obviously stayed on the charts for a while. At number 35, whether you like them or not, Firehouse's self-titled album is a great album. This thing got all the way to number 21 at one point on the strength of Love of a Lifetime, really, because all she wrote didn't do that great. Shake and Tumble was okay. Don't Treat Me Bad did okay. I like all those songs, but it was really Love of a Lifetime being played at every wedding for the next 22 years is really what put them over the top. At number 27, you know, Crazy World by Scorpions is not exactly their best album, but I will tell you that the Scorpions couldn't do much wrong in the 80s and 90s, the early 90s at least, because singles like Tease Me, Please Me did well, and Don't Believe Her did well. But this album was actually on the way up because they got all the way to number 21 because in September of this year, Send Me an Angel released. That was probably the last Scorpion single that did super well. At number 22, at the height of their popularity, whether you want to believe it or not, is Empire by Queensryche. And this album did really well. Peaked at number seven at one point, was headed on the way down. Singles like Empire and Best I Can did okay, but it was Silent Lucidity that took them to a new place. And then they had just released Jet City Woman, which was still doing well at the time. And then at number 12, my favorite album of all time is Extremes Pornography. It had been on the charts for about 29 weeks already. It got released in August of 90. It took them a while to get noticed because Decadence and Get the Funk Out didn't do that good. But then when More Than Words went to number one, it put Extreme on the map. And then later on, so this is July 91, in September 91, they released Wholehearted that kept this album on the charts through 1992. You know, you're talking about Empire Queens right there at the height. Scorpions could do no wrong. ACDC can do no wrong. It's the Firehouse album that they're still touring on. It's the Extreme album that they're still touring on. And Grunge is about ready to come and skid row past them all too. Pornography is my favorite album out of these six. What do you think? Facelift by Alice in Chains. I saw Alice in Chains open up for like Van Halen and Trickster or something like that back in the day. It took a while for this record to hit home with me, but now I love it. The Razor's Edge ACDC. I'm a huge ACDC fan. I liked Razor's Edge. Firehouse was exactly like Steelheart for me. I bypassed Firehouse because of the shitty ballads that they had. And then I went back and discovered the record and love like Shake and Tumble and Tumble and Shake, whatever it's called, that kind of stuff. Like that's right in my alley. So there's a lot of great stuff on that Firehouse record that I love nowadays. Crazy World. I don't remember this record at all. I remember Tease Me, Please Me and Don't Believe Her. But I went and listened to this record today. And other than the ballads that are on there, there's some pretty good stuff on this record. So I was kind of like, yeah. I don't know why I didn't listen to this record more when it came out because I do like Tease Me, Please Me and Don't Believe Her. I like both those singles. So 
I'm not really sure what happened with that record and me. Empire, I like Empire. I'm a Queensryche fan. I don't think it was as good as Operation Mindcrime, but there was still some good stuff on there, and Silent Lucidity isn't one of them. <laughs> anyway, uh, Porno Graffiti by Stream, definitely a Desert Island record for me, and for me, it's a real easy choice, and this is my favorite out of the group.
All right, so now we're going to go to the top 10. And, you know, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, come on, dude. Monkey business versus more than words. Monkey business versus silent lucidity or don't go away mad or some of these songs that I could care less about, blah, 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 although I like those songs. When you hear these albums, there's at least five that I am very, very surprised that Skid Row did better than because we're talking about some of the biggest acts of the late 80s, early 90s. And five of these albums that I'm going to mention out of these nine already had been number one. So these are some major, major albums. So number 10, June 29th, 1991, was Coolin' at the Playground by Another Bad Creation. Okay, not exactly one of the biggest bands on the planet. This album did get to number seven. ABC was never heard from again, so it didn't matter. Number nine, Close to Our Hearts, Shaker Moneymaker by the Black Crows. They'd been on the charts for 67 weeks and they were still dwelling in the top 10 because Jealous Again and Hard to Handle and Twice as Hard did well. But then She Talks to Angels really, really helped. And I think the Black Crows ended up almost being the Guns N' Roses of 1987. Like they were kind of hit at the right time and they were the new thing in rock, which didn't last too long because the next new thing in rock was coming <laughs> that totally killed Black Crows. At number eight, Mariah Carey's first album. Okay, maybe you're not a Mariah Carey fan. She was on the charts for 53 weeks at this point and was still in the top 10. This was a number one album at one point. At number seven, Time, Love, and Tenderness by Michael Bolton. Dude, you may not like it, the listener. Your wife loves Michael Bolton. That's how it is. And it was a number one album at one point. At number six, Out of Time by R.E.M. I can't stand R.E.M., but reality is R.E.M. had a number one album with this Right? And this was on the charts for 14 weeks, and it was still in the top six. Like, these were major hits on that album. Number five, Gonna Make You Sweat by the CC Music Factory. Okay, not exactly the biggest band ever, but they did have a hit album. Believe it or not, Skid Row beat Garth Brooks at number four with No Fences. Had been on the chart 41 weeks and was still in the top five, and it peaked at number four. Never hit number one, because at number three, you had N.W.A., and in number two, you had Paul Abdul, which were basically owning the charts at this point for like a month running. And here comes Skid Row landing at the top spot. So as we mentioned, Monkey Business and Slave to the Grind were released before the album released. Then Wasted Time released in October. In a Darkened Room came out in November of 91. And then Quicksand Jesus was released in 92. So before I get your thoughts, Stephen, on Slave to the Grind, just want to kind of get a couple of data points out there. Here's what happened to Slave to the Grind. It landed in the number one spot on June 29th. Two weeks later, it was number three. By August 31st, it was barely in the top 20. By October 26th, it wasn't even in the top 50 anymore. By Christmas, it was just hanging on in the top 100. By April of 92, it was basically gone because it was at 195. And by May 16th, it was completely gone, right? So it stayed on the chart 46 weeks. That's nothing to shake a stick at, but I just want to let you know when Slave to the Grind, 46 weeks later, after being at number one, dropped off the charts, Empire, Shake Your Money Maker, Fuck, Firehouse, and Porno were still on the charts. So it passed them, went down past them, went off the charts, and those major albums were still on the charts. So to me, this is all timing. This is just really Lucky timing with a great album. Your thoughts. 
<laughs> so this time was prime time when I was working at this record distributor, like I told you. I can tell you for sure that we used to have pallets of certain albums stacked. And you could tell like what were the big records at the time because we would have like these huge pallets of them. And the three pallets of stuff that I remember at that point in time was Out of Time by R.E.M., Prince, the symbol record, and then Madonna. Those were the three records that we had like these huge pallets of stuff because that was flying out the door. Skid Row, Slave to the Grind. The only reason it stayed on the charts for as long as it did was because they opened up the Use Your Illusion tour and then they headlined their own tour and they toured, 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 toured because Monkey Business was a solid release and a great song. But all the rest of that stuff to me was not that great. Wasted Time, Quicksand Jesus, In a Darkened Room, all that stuff was like dark, ballady stuff that to me, it's not my favorite songs on the record, and I don't think anybody else really identified that much with those three songs. So Slave of the Grind's got some great stuff on it, but that ain't the stuff that I like on that record. It's stuff like Slave to the Grind and Creep Show and Chain Gang and stuff like that. You know, that's the stuff I like off Slave to the Grind. The only thing I can tell you is when I went and looked at the NWA record, because I didn't know that thing. First of all, I can't say many of the titles on the record without getting in trouble. And I sure can't sing any of the songs. And all I really remember is a song called Dead Hookers. <laughs> or no, I'm sorry. I'll Kill a Hooker, which is essentially them killing a hooker. And that's it. <laughs> and then the, it leads into the next song, which is One Less Bitch. I'm pretty sure that this album wouldn't fly very well with today's Me Too movement. Just saying. <laughs> it's rough. It's some rough stuff. You wanted the best, but you got the best. The hottest band in the world. Kiss! It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. 1991 is a tough year for Kiss. So Paul and Gene are trying to figure out what the next move is, since Han the Shade didn't really do that well. Ace and Peter are knee-deep in champagne somewhere. Eric Singer's leaving Badlands at the time, and he's on tour with Lita. Vinnie Vincent, who knows where the hell he is. Eric Carr has cancer and passes away five months later. Bruce Kulick's trying to figure out what's his next move, because Paul and Gene haven't told him what they're doing next. So he takes the opportunity to help his brother Bob, rest in peace, with a new album that Bob's working. And the album is called No Bones About It by a band called Skull. And at the time, Skull is Dennis St. James on vocals, Jell Benner on bass, Bobby Rock, yes, that Bobby Rock, on drums, and of course, Bob Kulik on guitar. Bruce helped write a couple of songs, but I wanted to play you the best song off that record because that No Bones About It has some hits and misses. So from 1991's No Bones About It, here is Bob Kulik's band called Skull with a song called Eyes of a Stranger.
Yeah, so did you get a chance to watch that like 20-minute Bruce Kulig thing he did for Bob? Yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah, it was a real nice little piece, and he talked uh, real briefly about Skull being kind of Bob's attempt at hard rock or uh, heavy metal or whatever. Yeah, I think this song's good. Bob put out some good stuff over the course of time, for sure. Yeah, and that's a good song, and you know, it's 1991, so I don't know how many chances he's going to get with music like this, especially since, honestly, he doesn't have a lot of big names helping him. 
if there was a name connected to it and it was, I don't know, Jeff Tate's skull, then maybe it does better. I don't know, but uh, just a little bit too late. Before it gets your closing thoughts here, just to give you an idea, on June 29th, 1991, the number one song in the country was Rush Rush by Paul Abdul. Number one movie in the country was The Naked Gun, Two and a Half, The Smell of Fear. Stupid ass movie. And the number one TV show was 60 Minutes because people need their news. That's why there's a CNN because it's basically 24 hours of 60 minutes is basically what it is. So not exactly three things that I ever go back to (laughs) as number ones. I'm sure you're a big 60 Minutes fan. I watch 60 Minutes once in a blue moon when they have a story featured on it that I'm interested in, but I can't tell you the last time that I saw a story that I was interested in. So (laughs) it's, I mean, 60 minutes has been on the air for God, how long, 40 years, 50 years. It's been on forever. I mean, I remember my parents used to watch 60 minutes. Now, should we consider this a successful experiment? So interesting, a little different take on the topics of people, you know, see slave of the ground. It's like, they didn't review slave of the ground. We might get there someday, but there are some interesting dates in history that have to connect with rock. Right. And stuff that didn't happen a ton. And it all happened in really a pretty condensed time frame. Well, I like it because it was uh, like a mini history lesson for a day in in history. Uh, And you're right. The way that you read these charts, it connects the trend and what's going on in music at the time on this particular date. What you can't really see or you have to dig deeper into is bands and albums that are on their way up or down because of, like you said, timing, right? A particular single that's released or a particular this is happening or, you know, it's been on the charts for 20 weeks and now it's going down the charts, you know, that kind of thing. It's just, there's all kinds of stories to be told within all of this. Yeah, it's interesting because you heard at the top of the episode, Sebastian talking about that this was the first week they actually scanned. It was based on actual sales. And it's very interesting. The minute they made it based on sales, Skid Row and Van Halen debut at number one back-to-back. But Garth Brooks and Paul Abdul and all these other... Now, it's possible those albums have been around so long, they already had their sales, and they're not going to continue to sell. But in times before, it was like you had to eke up the charts. Like, man, if you look at the charts in like 1980, 1981, 1982, it is literally forever to move up the charts a couple of steps, an album would release and in January of 82 and not get to the top of the charts until like January of 84. Like it would take forever for it to move. Well, that's because back in the day, they built a band. To me, it was much better because they built a band for a long career versus a quick hit it and get it. And the difference is, So with rock bands like Skid Row and Firehouse and Scorpions, the fans bought albums for bands like CNC Music Factory. People aren't buying albums. They're buying singles, singles and crap like that. They're not buying the full album like rock fans are. And that, I think, is a huge difference. But back in the day, you know, you released one single to get people known. You released another single to kind of lay the foundation. You released another single and you had some success on the first album and you came back with a second album and you built and you built. And it was building bands for long careers. Now, 
with the sound scan era, it was let's get as many buyers that first week in release and then it drops off the charts. And uh, to me, that doesn't set a band up for a long career. That's the same with movies, right? Movies hit really heavy that first week and then they're gone. It's the number one movie in America this week and next week it's on video. <laughs> yeah, so a uh, nice little episode. Want to thank all of the listeners for all the feedback we get. Um, we have a lot of fact checkers and data checkers hard at work to uh, let us know at times that uh, we don't always get our facts right. But, uh, you know, we never claim to get any of our facts right. Uh, I will actually tell you that everything I told you today was wrong. So you happy now? We can not pronounce names or albums or bands or a lot of other words that are just too confusing for us. A lot of the information that we share with you guys in most cases is probably 75% correct and 25% wrong. It's our podcast, not yours. We appreciate you listening. We're not political. In fact, hate politics and sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Woo! <laughs> so thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, check out the Van Halen episodes that will continue to keep coming. Thanks, you guys. We'll see you next week. Or we'll talk to you next week, I guess, because you can't see us. So see ya later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys. Turn on the TV because I got nowhere to go.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 